More whiskey? Yeah, a little. In the beginning of the history of experimental observation or any other kind of observation on scientific things, it's intuition. It's intuition. Which is really based on just experience with everyday objects that suggest reasonable explanation. Welcome to Two Shrinks Pod. My name's Amy Donaldson and as always I'm joined by Hunter Mulcair. Hello. Hello. So tonight we're very excited because we're doing our last pod in our personality disorders series. So tonight we're focusing on the last personality disorder in cluster C disorders. So these ones are ones that are about being anxious and fearful. So in the last pod we talked about dependent and the one before that avoidant. So tonight it's obsessive compulsive personality disorder, which if you've listened to the pod for a while, you know that we've talked about quite a while ago. Yeah, often it was in our ninth pod. It's our second most listened to episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's clearly an interest in it. Yeah, so we thought we'd do the same kind of thing that we've been doing throughout this series. So whereas last time we sort of talked about a collection of articles and mm. had a bit of a looser kind of chat. In general, this PD is characterised by a focus on things being pretty orderly and perfectionistic. So it's what, in common language, a lot of people say, oh, I'm a little OCD. What they're actually describing really is OCPD, that kind of liking things neat, orderly, controlled. Whereas OCD is a condition where you have kind of disturbing thoughts or images and then you have compulsive strategies to try and make these go away. So things like counting or repeating an action. Mm. So the classic one for that is distressing thoughts around, say, infection. And then so you would wash your hands lots and lots of times. Yeah, for hours a day. Yeah, for a repetitive kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. They are highly comorbid. So about a quarter of people with OCD also have OCPD. So there's a big overlap there, but we're focusing on the personality disorder. So today we'll talk through the DSM criteria and then basics around the what it would look like if you had a style or the traits of this disorder and then we'll move on to talking about theory before wrapping up with a chat about therapy and things we came across before i hand over to hunter as always could you please say lovely things about us on social media so rate us a five-star review on itunes would be lovely or on whatever podcast app you use uh, we love receiving emails, so that's two shrinkspod at gmail.com. You can contact us on Twitter, that's two shrinkspod, or visit our website, two shrinkspod.com. So find us wherever you find other people in the web. <laughs> that's a good finish, eh? <laughs> Thank you. So, with that, I'm going to hand over to Hunter for the criteria. Yeah, so OCPD is it interesting? Like, I think it's just really, really interesting disorder, and I've, and I've got to say, reading. For this episode made me kind of relieved that I don't think I've got this disorder, but mm-hmm. then also concerned that maybe I do have <laughs> so, Yeah, see, whereas it convinced me that I don't have it, yeah. whereas people have commented that maybe I do. Mm. I then went, well, no. Well, so just tick, tick these off as I go through them, Amy. So OCPD is a pervasive pattern of preoccupation with orderliness, perfectionism, and mental and interpersonal control. And this is at the expense of flexibility, openness, and efficiency, and seems to begin by early adulthood and present in four or more of the following. So there's a list here, so I'm just going to go through that. Someone is preoccupied with details, rules, lists, order, organization, or schedules to the extent that the major point of an activity is lost. 
Number two would be shows perfectionism that interferes with task completion. So is unable to complete a project because of their own very strict standards not being met. They are excessively devoted to work and productivity to the exclusion of leisure activities and friendships. But you would rule out if that was because finances Mm -hmm. was important. Uh, Number four would be over-conscientiousness, scrupulous and inflexible about matters of morality, ethics and values. And that you need to sort of rule out whether that's a cultural or religious component. Number five, they are unable to discard worn out or worthless objects, even when they have no sentimental value. Uh, Someone is reluctant to delegate tasks or to work with others unless they uh, submit to exactly his or her way of doing things. They adopt a miserly spending style towards both self and others, so money being viewed as something to be hoarded for future catastrophes. And the last one is that they show rigidity and stubbornness. Mm. So when you read that list, did did you become concerned? (laughs) Not so much that list, but like doing the reading about the theories a bit later on, I was like, oh, it's a little too close to home. It's a little bit close to home. Mm. The prevalence of this disorder is quite large, Mm. like 2.1 to 7.9%. So that's a lot larger than some of the other things. And that's in general population estimates. So Yeah, it's definitely larger than the other couple of personality disorders we've recently talked about they've all been around two or lower Mm. yeah Mm. in terms of the style i reckon that that maybe this is more appropriate for (laughs) (laughs) let's continue let's continue and Uh, and and for any psychologists out there listening so that's uh yeah it's a pretty common (laughs) accusation (laughs) (laughs) so someone who doesn't meet full criteria but who has traits of this He's likely to take pride in the finer points of accomplishing work without being overwhelmed or without letting some detail dominate the overall plan or final product. They'll do the best possible job they can within the constraints of time, resources and their own desires. They'll be able to work hard and consistently, but they recognise the importance of intimacy in relationships. People with traits recognise that individual values and situations must sometimes trump the blanket application of moral rigid kind of absolutes they hold on to useful objects but draw the line when saving them becomes inconvenient those with the traits recognize the valuable contributions of others and are flexible enough to shift their mindset and make room for new ideas they're conscious of saving money but not at the cost of relationships or occasional spontaneity and the last one is that they're capable of weighing the facts and changing their mind if warranted so you get a sense of someone who's probably far more able to work with others and adapt to their environment yeah and, and a lot of those traits, I think, would be quite highly adaptive. Mm. Or yeah, they're valued in our society. Valued in certainly certain work settings, Definitely. I think, is, is the way I would yeah. think about that. And probably study as well, yeah. be valued. Yeah, yeah academia. Mm. Yeah. And also, like, you could sort of see certain environments would breed that, I would suggest. Absolutely. So what we're going to do is I'm going to talk about historical forerunners to OCPD. Also, I'm going to talk about cognitive approaches and also evolutionary neurological approaches. Also, Amy gets to talk about psychodynamic (laughs) approaches, which if you listened to our last pod, I had a conniption about psychodynamic. And also she gets to talk about her favorite interpersonal theories. And the reason that we cover all these different theoretical approaches is that it gives a flavor to the disorder that one, one approach doesn't Mm -hmm. necessarily give although i have to say that the bits that i read certainly borrowed more than 
more than some of the other pods that we've talked about. Like mm. they, like in the cognitive section, they start talking about the super ego. Yeah. Like, what is going on here? Well, the same with the psychodynamic. They speak a little bit about cognitive stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. so historical forerunners, not surprisingly, OCPD is somewhat intertwined with this sort of history of obsessive and compulsive symptoms. Mm-hmm. In the 1860s, it was a German theorist and Kraft Ebbing. Uh, I'm I'm sure I'm pronouncing that incorrectly. And he termed the what was the German equivalent of compulsion, which was Zwang, Z-W-A-N-G. That was sort of used in reference to the constricted thinking of depressives mm-hmm. or the, the people with depression. And then it sort of became used to describe compulsive questioning, compulsive curiosity, compulsive doubting, the questioning of oneself as to what to do, how to do it, that kind of thing. And then sort of by the end of the 19th century, there seemed to be a debate about whether there was hidden emotions underlying compulsive behavior. Interestingly, due to differences in translation in New York, Zwang meant compulsions, whereas in London, mm-hmm. it meant obsessions. Hmm. So if you're uh, being very technical about stuff, well, it's not really that technical. It's quite, quite different. But yeah. Then sort of in the early 19th, uh, 20th century, Schneider noted this inner uncertainty and tendency towards overcompensation, sort of having outer correctness covering and imprisoning inner security. These are carefully dressed people, pedantic, correct, scrupulous, and yet they are exceedingly insecure. Mm-hmm. So you kind of get the, the sense of someone who is, you know, very, very neat and controlled, but at the same time, quite sort of nervous. Mm. Yeah, if that kind yeah. of thing. And you could probably, if you're listening at home, you could probably think of someone in your life that sort of will fit that. You Definitely. will have come across someone like that. Kreschmeider. <laughs> you're getting all the great names. Oh, I, and I'm terrible <laughs> at pronouncing names. Um, Labelled sensitive types as people who are burdened by intrapsychic complexes that they can't externalise and discharge. This is sort of a theme that kind of comes up again and again. They're unable to take decisive action and to become uncertain over large or small matters. And so they hold fast to standards set by others and essentially becoming men of conscience, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So that kind of gives you a sort of a historical thing, but they sort of said that, that a lot of the writing took off with psychodynamic approaches. Mm. So over to you. Yeah, yeah. I um, messaged Hunter early in the week and I think my message made you a day in that while well, you had to talk about the oral stage last week. And the nipple. Yep, I have to talk about the anal stage. <laughs> <laughs> so here we go. <laughs> so last week we touched briefly on Freud's theory around psychosocial development. We didn't go into it too much because we were too busy rolling our eyes. Yep. But it occurred to me that we probably should give a brief introduction into what it's actually about. Yeah, no, let's do that. Uh, So essentially, Freud believed that we all go through phases of development where our enjoyment is focused on a different area of the body. So we start with oral, which is around sort of early infancy feeding, that sort of thing, to anal, which is toddlerhood, toilet training, and then to genital, which is later toddlerhood and onwards. And the idea is you can get stuck in these different phases and that that has an impact on your functioning later on Mm -hmm. yeah so he saw the anal stage as being about inhibition and a delay of natural urges so it's kind of a conflict between the fun loving id part of the individual Mm -hmm. and their parents desire for them to become toilet trained it's a super ego yeah 
And so if the parents are too controlling, impatient or demanding, then the child could develop what he termed anally retentive traits, which is probably something that most Most people people would have heard heard of. So the idea is that the child reacts to the parent's controlling behavior by exerting their own control and repressing their emotional and physical urges. Delightfully, it can go the other way, which I just wanted to flag for the sake of seeing Hunter's reaction and become, are you ready for this? Go for it. Anal expulsive. Good. Yep. Using feces as a weapon. Yep. So these people become a little bit destructive and wild in adulthood. Yeah, right. So they're the exact opposite of the group we're talking about now, but just wanted to flag it with you that that's an option. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Post Freud. uh, We should should try and be serious. Uh, We should try and be serious. Okay, yep. Post-Freud, theorists like Fromm expanded the original concept to include ideas about hoarding and rigidity as protective. So you hang on to things so that you build a bit of a wall around yourself, literally and metaphorically. Mm -hmm. Orderliness is also a way of controlling things in an unpredictable world. So if I can make my environment steady and consistent, then the chaos of the world doesn't touch me as much. Makes sense. So the issue is, is that people with this disorder also require the same kind of order internally. So they want their emotions and their thought processes and everything to fit Mm. into little boxes. Mm -hmm. So conflicting and complex feelings create anxiety and insecurity that must be contained and they have to use a whole bunch of different defense strategies to try and keep everything boxed up as much as they can. They've also then got a really rigid ego ideal. So this kind of picture of what they should be like. So they tend to suppress emotional experiences and deconstruct things into parts that are easy to talk about but not felt. So everything becomes kind of fragmented and logical. Mm. They also talk about how memories aren't emotional for people with this disorder, that rather than being kind of complex and messy, they're contained cognitive stories that are unconnected from other experiences. Mm. So you don't risk triggering off another memory because this memory sits in a little box all on its own. And this was the memory. Yeah, this is what it is. We follow this story and that's it. Yeah. Yeah, which is interesting. So people with this disorder can also displace their anger and insecurity by seeking out a social position of power that allows them to be this kind of sanctioned superego for others. Mm. So they're in a kind of righteous role where they can make sure that everyone else follows the rules Mm -hmm. and they can be quite judgmental and strict in their leadership or uh, in the way they manage others. Uh, If the tight control fails to work, they then become flooded with guilt. So they go to great lengths to make up for their failings and go above and beyond expectations. So the later theorists focus on the interaction between child and parent and the conflict between a parent's desire for control and the child's desire for autonomy. So parents expect perfection and then this is internalised by the child. They're taught to feel a deep sense of responsibility and then guilt if they don't meet these expectations. They're also then discouraged from play and are kind of shamed for any time that urge to play comes up. Mm. So you must be doing these tasks in a perfect way Mm -hmm. and that's Mm -hmm. all that's acceptable. So by adolescence, they've then internalised these requirements and become really harshly judgmental of themselves and have this kind of moral superiority in relation to other people. So they've already been set on that That path path, to what it might look like later. So that's kind of the the gist of psychoanalysis yeah right i mean 
dovetails incredibly neatly with the cognitive section. So what was interesting is that they talked about that early psychoanalytic thinkers talked about that the cognitive traits of OCPD before cognitive therapy became a thing, mm-hmm. right? Reich in 1933 talked about compulsives being indecisive and doubting, ill-disposed towards affects as they are acutely inaccessible to emotion, mm. right? And like what you were saying, they treat thought the same way. They treat everything else. They like things in order, categorized. If a thought or something is not easily organized, it becomes a source of anxiety or an object of contempt. Which to me, when I was reading that, the first thought that came to mind is how exhausting that would be mm. to be constantly separating everything yeah. out. And then, and then maybe it would make sense that that's why you don't you don't have time for emotion mm. in a way. Like because you're like, well, you know, like, oh. Oh, well, I've, I've got busy this, creating all this like, order. Like the, the primary emotion is anxiety because mm. I've got to make sure that everything's right. Yeah. And, you know, in some ways I would think that anxiety is the primary emotion mm. because it's like it's defense. Yeah. It's, it's, it's what if. And then everything else, happiness or whatever can come second. right? Mm. So and then there's a theorist, Rado, quote, devoted to the classical concept of the anal character, end <laughs> quote, um, <laughs> described compulsives as concrete, factually orientated, contemptuous of fancy and imagination mm-hmm. and sort of seemed to think that this was a reaction to harsh punitive righteous parents mm-hmm. so things that are concrete are easy to manage and keep you out of trouble especially as a child yeah this idea in terms of like the attentional processes so like this idea of where your attention is mm-hmm. as an individual most people can shift their attention freely but people with ocpd seem to struggle with this they're sharp, they've got good attention or good ability, but it's sort of acutely restricted. It's principled and, concent- principled and concentrated. So Shapiro, who's a big uh, researcher, mm. talked about compulsives being plagued with intrusive attention to irrelevancies. It just mm-hmm. doesn't stop. So they might finish something, but then they don't relax. It just would shift to the next thing. Mm. So they, they gave an example like you'd finish your work, but then it would shift to the cleanliness of the floor yep. of the floor, or it might be shift to some kind of personality aspect of yourself. That's really minor that mm. you're worried about or something yep. like that. So this is kind of, you get a picture of someone who doesn't unwind. There's no rest from, nope. from that. As a result, they're often unable to grasp the bigger picture. They're unable to grasp the emotional tone of interpersonal situations. So they might seem cold, it focuses on the detail, not the bigger picture. Mm-hmm. They might not be able to be spontaneous or empathetic. So they have limited intuition or like not really, they don't really have any good hunches. Yeah. Right. Because of the level of attention where their attention is at. And interesting, like as a result, they sort of seem to think that they might be impervious to aesthetic appreciation of art. The literature, mm. right? Because they're sort of much yeah. more bogged down in the kind of detail, the detail, or their you know, structure, and also like they're emotionally isolated, mm. right? So rather than kind of being able to stop and just have have literally have a look at the bigger picture, yeah, right, yeah, in, in a gallery, yeah. And what I thought was interesting is they said that they're likely to not be aware of others' emotional lives, like, mm. and and that others' emotional lives would be richer than their own yeah they wouldn't have insight into that and so others might view their world as impoverished Mm. but they wouldn't they wouldn't realize that yeah and so i kind of get this idea i don't know where i get it from from tv or something but the image of like a scientist yeah who is loved by people around them because Mm. they think 
he or she is brilliant mm. and amazing and, and and a nice person, mm. but they they don't sort of see what they're lacking. Yeah, and that that because they, they're too focused on whatever the yeah, and they and the idea is yeah their idea and that they could be having a a better time. Mm. If you, you know, yeah, like, I know what you mean. Yeah, it's sort of interesting. Add us at two shrinks pod if you can think of a good example of that. So, you know, like life is sterile, existence is dehumanized, they think in conventional rules, regulation schedules, social hierarchies, and can regard others with contempt, seeing others as primitive, disorganized, ineffective. Like mm-hmm. kind of so they're likely to get very irritated with someone like that. Yeah, but not show it. Well, they might. Hmm? So, what, so I'll, I'll get on to that yeah. in just a sec. <laughs> so they, they might go well in bureaucracies. Yeah. But if someone crosses them, or is too carefree, they can use their desire for preciseness and details the weapon. So mm. I like I like to think of like, you know, maybe a strict headmaster or a strict mm. school teacher, you know, complicating the lives of others. They're venting their inner anger but hiding behind sort of organizational codes. Yeah, behind know? the rules. You know, that that yeah. kind of the 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 strict religious person or something yeah. like that. In, in it's TV. not about their own feeling of anger or irritation it's about that you've flouted the rules yeah but really it is about that so it talks about it's in millen the author of the book that we've been using talks about how someone in ocpd analyzes the emotion out of experience Mm -hmm. like so what you're talking about with the memory doesn't Mm. have the lacks that emotion yeah and so they might not actually be able to reflect on the fact that they're being sadistic Mm. in their behavior they would justify their type of behavior that others are unworthy. They unworthy people need to be filtered out. They're hell bent on following the rules, but really deep down, they kind of resent having to follow mm. the rules. That little child yeah. that was made to follow the rules resents it, right? So, someone laughing about things, getting getting away with things, makes them angry. And so, it talks about essentially talks about sort of like externalizing behavior. So mm. they have hostility towards others for errors that you know people make mistakes. Like yeah. that's. But that's unacceptable. You know, yeah, but that's unacceptable. But humans make mistakes mm. and that's okay, mm. particularly if they're minor. And so this is like driven by revenge against their own internal rules. And so they externalize it out. It was sort of the Makes way sense. I understood it. Fits quite neatly. There, there are other OCPD people who are not sadistic in tone. And uh, I've got to say that the bit in this book describing that sadistic stuff really felt like the author had come across someone like that. Yeah. Like there was a real sense of this feels firsthand. Right. Always <laughs> <laughs> well, interesting when you read yeah, that in a textbook. You're kind of like, hmm. Mm, yeah. well, that, this is written strongly. Mm. So but for others with OCPD or OCPD traits, they're not, they might not be sadistic in tone. And really this is kind of like what you're talking about, like order and detail is this cognitive defense against uncertainty and ambiguity. Mm. Some people might be more submissive and they're afraid of condemnation and they have this like need to be sure about things. Mm-hmm. So they dread mis- making mistakes. They might restrict their behavior to situations that are familiar. Dull routines means they avoid danger. That's why someone might have a tight and well-organized approach to life. Mm. Right? But the problem is that it's limiting because they don't get to... Develop new perceptions, mm. new ways to think, to, to enjoy, go and do something different. Go, yeah. Let's go eat something different for yeah. change. Let's go do something different. Mm. You know, that kind of thing. This other kind of element which kind of comes up, which is that people are indecisive, mm. right? Yeah, that's come up in some of the stuff. I'll talk yeah, about like so they have this sort of difficulty. So unlike in sort of dependent personality, it sort of seems to be being driven by something different. Like so they mm. and they talked about this like information processing loop. So some someone might seek out a lot of information 
before making decisions. So like I think about someone who in a very, very modern day context would do a lot of online research before going and doing something. Mm. And they get overwhelmed by the detail and they're already someone who's fearful of error. And the quote, I like this this quote, become mired in a paralysis of analysis, Mm. right? Yeah. You know, so there's this loop. The more detail they get, the more the facts fail to converge on a single path, Mm -hmm. the more their anxiety increases, so they redouble their efforts and gather more details. Loop repeats. Yeah. So, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Unless, of course, you found the right piece of information. If only. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So... Beck, the, the the very, very famous cognitive therapist who developed cognitive therapy, he always talks about core beliefs. So if you've not heard about core beliefs before, they're the beliefs about the world, the self and others. These drive behavior, thinking and emotions. So you can have sort of negative automatic thoughts and anxiety and stuff like that, but they will follow a pattern and that pattern will reveal a, a set of core beliefs. Mm. Right? In OCPD, it's I should. Yeah. And if a should cannot be identified, then they feel uncomfortable. Mm. So it's like, I should do X. And they sort of seem to have like overdeveloped a schemata for control, responsibility, systemization. Mm -hmm. And schemas like sort of relating to play, spontaneity seem to just be underdeveloped. So if you think about that, you know, that little child. Yeah. Isn't given a chance to to play. play. Right. Yeah. And they also have beliefs about I fear. Uh, You know, they worry about being criticized by an observer or an Mm. authority figure which relates to their parent. Yeah. So this is like web of like, I should, I fear, I should, I fear, I Mm. should, I fear. It's no wonder they're indecisive. Yeah. And they like scripted situations Mm. because they know what to do. They have clear rules. What to do, how to do it. Mm. So interesting. So this is a great paradox that they talk about, which is that if a compulsive goes to a party, then this paradox emerges because they work at enjoying themselves because that is the purpose of the party. <laughs> but, but, quote, the absurdity never dawns on them. Yeah, so, which I, I thought, like that. Which is really, really interesting. It's like, we're, I'm working really hard to have a good time. Because mm, that's what you should do. That's what I'm doing. Cognitive errors in OCPD, straight up black and white thinking. So that perpetuates their worldview. Should statements. So, you know, these are absolutes. And you can imagine they'll be really, mm. really strong. Yeah. In... in Regardless of any situation, any ability, any availability of resource, you should be doing blah. Because that they're dichotomous and that is moral view of the world, violating beliefs like thou shall not fail, thou shall always be in control, results in catastrophic thinking mm-hmm. and guilt. And they can't really do what they desire, they do what they should, so they have little joy and high anxiety. And they think about the past or the future and not really on the present, which is a problem because the present is where... It's home to the most joy and mm. intimacies of life. Yeah. So as a theoretical approach and explanation, it, it's really, really succinct. Which it is. It's kind of, well, actually saying that out loud is kind of hard. <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, there you go. Yeah. So you're taking us to nice. interpersonal? Interpersonal. Yeah, my favourite. The interpersonal perspective started in the 50s with Timothy Leary, who described this personality type as hypernormal which I quite liked. So people with this PD make normality a goal and they want other people to perceive them as reasonable, successful and mature. They are doing the right thing. Playfulness, indulgence and the capacity to show deep feelings are suppressed. They're irrelevant. Mm -hmm. Squishing. So Keisler viewed this personality type as a form of hostile submission. So they're emotionally non-responsive, they're hyper-rational, perfectionistic and indecisive. They've got a tendency towards censoring and pre-monitoring. So they're kind of controlling, but in a submissive way. 
Yeah. So they're highly deliberate in their interpersonal interactions and they compulsively monitor their own actions and messages. So their communication is rigid and orderly. And if others are superior, this rigidity increases in an attempt to avoid mistakes mm-hmm. in the face of someone who could judge them. Yeah, right. Other people view them as reserved, cheerless or grim, which is not a word that you often hear, but I quite like that. Yeah, grim. Grim, yeah. yeah. They're polite, but it stems from a desire to adhere to social norms rather than genuine warmth physically they appear tight and controlled they choose their words carefully in conversation and they remain distant and impersonal preferring intellectualized statements they might also speak in quite stilted formal ways and they describe something which immediately made me think about other people's speech which is that they use universal statements so they'll say things like one finds that or one might notice rather than i noticed Mm. Yeah. So this then comes across as formal and restrained. It doesn't really fit with our general social conversation. Their conscientiousness makes them good employees and they tend to adopt the needs of the business as their own. So they're hierarchical, they're deferential or obsequious to superiors and then authoritarian and dominant with subordinates. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're protected by their alignment with powerful others because they're seen as, you know, a good employee, someone who's working diligently they vent their hostility by rigidly enforcing rules regulations or codes of conduct like you mentioned yeah Yeah. so in terms of development this perspective sees it coming from a couple of sort of facets of parenting so the first one is parental over control which is based on the idea that children can't be trusted with any autonomy Mm -hmm. so you have to constantly watch them to make sure that they do the right thing and you punish minor mistakes even before the child's old enough to understand why it's a mistake or that it is one so the message to children is you better be careful you're very close to being bad yeah. yeah. So you'd be anxious about being mm. bad. Yeah. They talk about that the punishments can be quite severe as well that come with that. It can be judgment or it can be physical punishments or things like that. But mm. the same message comes across yep. that you're this close to yeah. being a bad kid. So as a result, they're scared of making a mistake and they stick to rules as a protective mechanism. They yep. just keep within the lines. It'll be okay. So the other part of it is that parents rarely reward their child's legitimate achievements. So they're constantly striving for this perfection and punishing it when it doesn't happen. Mm. But then they take the achievements that do happen for granted. So these kids feel as though they'll inevitably do something bad and then they feel guilty that they haven't done enough to earn their parents' approval. Yeah. Like, so if if you are a perfectionist, I think a really interesting thought experiment to have is to go... is to think about a time when you did actually achieve that level because you will have actually achieved that and ask yourself, how long did that good feeling last for? Mm. Yeah. How long did it it last for a long period of time or a short period of time Mm. before you had to do something else? Yeah. Yeah. Immediately the thing that comes to mind, and and we may chop this out, (laughs) is... You know, I've been watching the most recent American Survivor Mm -hmm. and in the first episode... The scientific yeah, guy, yeah, yeah, yeah. he solves a puzzle in something like 15 seconds or something. It's ridiculously fast. And then they interview him on how... And they, and they win the reward. And they win the reward. Yeah. And you find out that he's actually spent his career looking at the mathematical ways that this type of puzzle will be solved. Yeah. 
and they interview him and they cut between different statements where he's obviously been talking for an extended period of time about all the mistakes he made and how that could have been better. Yeah. And yet like, no one else could have done it that quickly yeah, and or also, that and, proficiently. And it doesn't matter because he won it. Yeah. 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 It's that kind of... that's probably... Yeah, very exact. Yeah. So the last sort of theorist that comes into this perspective is Benjamin, who we've spoken about multiple times. And so Benjamin focused on the cold formality of parents, so they really lack warmth. They ask their children to perform tasks that they're developmentally incapable of doing and then demand perfection in those tasks. And then she also emphasised that if this cold and controlling manner is matched with anger and moralizing when something is wrong, that then people can develop this kind of self-righteous streak, that they're superior to other people Mm. by doing things the right way. So that's kind of the interpersonal in a nutshell. Yeah, I mean, and it's interesting. I was struck doing this reading, I'd not really thought much about the moralistic Mm. component of this disorder as opposed to when we previously did the pod and just my previous sort of contact with people. Yeah, me neither. But yeah, it sort of fits with a particular type of parenting, Mm. I think. So the approach I'm going to talk about is this, what we call the evolutionary and neuropsychological kind of approach or neurological? Neuropsychological? I think it's neurobiological. Okay. Mm. There we go. (laughs) Neurobiological. Talks about as children develop, as people develop, children become assertive and resistant to parents, like as they're acquiring sort of autonomous skills, you know, they're they're developing self-confidence, right? It's a natural part of learning how to branch out. They kind of push back. And so parents who are over-controlling, they might have firm and harsh discipline. So physically, they might curtail the child, Mm -hmm. emotionally berate the child, squelch any transgression, no matter how small. If a child can't escape, they would withdraw entirely mm-hmm. or they might become adamant or rebel. And if a child can operate without any condemnation, they might go for that, right? Mm. So you might develop like or live in a sphere where you only do what a parent approves of. Yeah. So this circumscribed boundaries and you don't go beyond that. Mm. So just like what you're talking yeah. about. It's like you keep within that safe yeah. zone. Yeah. So... The consequence of that is that they don't develop adequate Mm self-confidence that other more free children get, right? So this is a problem about being over-controlling or over-protective. And so they get fear because they fear deviating from the narrow path that's been set, Mm -hmm. right? They know that they can stick to the path and that'll be okay, but they're not able to kind of know when to push it. The consequences are too... Too yeah. scary. Yeah. And in life, you know, there there is a path. And in some cases, you can bend the rules. In some cases, you can break the rules, mm. right? So, they have little confidence. They fear the wrath of their parents. And so, they, like we've been talking about, submerge impulses towards autonomy and exploring. There's this interesting section between over-controlling and over-protective mm. in terms of parenting styles. So, over-protective is a parent who restrains the child, but perhaps in a more gentle kind of way which is what we spoke about last week with dependent that it comes from all that kind of hovering worried concern yeah you know maybe maybe don't do maybe don't do that you know like that that's probably a bit dangerous i'll do it for you darling yeah i'll do it don't don't go on the swing you know that's a bit kind of thing you know Mm. maybe don't climb up there that kind of Mm. whereas like over controlling it's it has like a much more punitive component Mm. and it's only if the child misbehaves Whilst like a hostile parent, so which would be perhaps a parent who of an antisocial or sadistic yeah. personality, 
uh, hostile parents punitive regardless mm. of what goes on. So they're just punitive to the child. Mm. Whereas uh, over-control is sort of basically contingent punishment. It only occurs under clearly defined conditions, mm. which is kind of what you're sort of talking about. Yeah, yeah. Another aspect is it features guilt responsibility to others. So, so basically a child is essentially moralized. They taught to have a lot of guilt and moral things mm. like what we're talking about. These natural inclinations replay and impulse gratification, they're shamed about it, mm. right? This kind of gets back to like what Freud was talking about with, the, you know, you, when you're learning how to toilet train, you're learning how to control yeah. stuff, yeah. right? You're learning how to control, control your body. You control your body. And it's gone awry Mm. from that. So basically, like in practical terms, like someone might be terrified about mischief and sin. They would have been shamed about it. And then what's interesting is that the guilt that they, this learned guilt means that if they get angry at someone, they would feel bad about being angry. Mm. And so essentially they turn their anger back in on themselves. Back in on themselves. So rather than like, getting annoyed at their parent because their parents being unfair Mm. they'll go they might get angry but then go oh my gosh i'm being angry and Mm. i shouldn't be angry that's really really bad yeah and i certainly know in therapy with people many times you say no it's really important to be angry Mm. it's okay to be angry not okay you sound you sound like it's you know that kind of thing like mm. and in, in the cancer world you know people get angry about their diagnosis but they feel they shouldn't they should mm. feel like they should be you know being positive or whatever in other cases there's lots of other cases where people get angry or feel like they should be angry but they subvert it right yeah and so they feel sinful that kind of thing as adults they defer to authority they worship authority they conform to it they internalize this responsibility and they don't have this oppositional behavior mm. To superiors, they seem very conscientious. To underlings, they are sadistic taskmakers, Mm. demanding standards that their parents demanded of them and slim mercy to those that fail. So at the surface, they seem like the dependent, but underneath, they're like the antisocial. It's interesting. Yeah. Interesting mix. (laughs) Yep. So you could sort of pick that up like... You could probably pick that up by asking, you know, if you're in an organisation, mm. you'd ask what their superiors think of somebody and what the underlings think yep. of them. Yeah. Yeah. And that would be, and that would kind of... Informative. <laughs> that would that would yield. If you're this disparity, that'd be interesting. Mm, absolutely. So for the last section, we're going to talk about therapy. I'll talk about the traps that can come up in therapy and then Hunter will finish it off with a discussion of the approaches that might be useful for this group of people. So at the start of therapy, these clients are likely to defer to the therapist as an expert because they're in a position of authority. And then part of the process of therapy is then creating a more even trusting relationship and understanding that the therapist doesn't have all the answers. So therapy provides an opportunity to learn the importance of sharing and reflecting inner experiences and using these to reflect on their relationships. So it's got quite an interpersonal lens. Mm, mm, mm. But the work can be undermined by a few different things. So most people with OCPD are quite cooperative and conscientious and so they seem like the perfect client. They come in and they seem like they're willing to engage and they're you know up for doing homework and all of those kind of things, following the rules. Mm. But they're also self-punitive. So any therapeutic interaction could become something judgmental. So you, you could get sort of somehow slip into playing out the same pattern 
of them needing to be perfect for a superior other person. Mm-hmm. Which is the pattern you're actually wanting to break. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. So for therapists who are more directive or confrontational, they might inadvertently recreate early experiences and reinforce that kind of self-criticism mm. and suppressed irritation. So the client's unlikely to say, hey, it's not okay that you did that. They're likely to just squish that mm. irritation. And perhaps you wouldn't pick it up from yeah. a transference reaction. Exactly. And so then a vicious cycle can develop where the therapist feels frustrated that they're kind of not getting anywhere. They don't really know what's going on. The client intellectualizes and refuses to open up and they feel shamed by the therapist's frustration and then withdraw further and that kind of just keeps perpetuating. Even if the therapist is warm and accepting, they have to kind of pace their exposure to emotions and are trying to get this client to open up. Because if it's too unstructured, it could provoke anxiety. And if you move things along too fast the therapist might become frustrating uh, frustrated as the client's likely to want to check out every possible avenue of things so they're going to want to consider each bit factually deliberate on the options and squish any emotional conflict that might actually be a really good place to start therapeutically Mm. so you can see how it could be quite frustrating because where my mind went when you said therapy traps was Depending on the kind of therapist you are mm. and the individual, your own your your own personality, mm. the, the therapist's personality, it could like, go in all different. Yeah, like you could, you might have a gut reaction to someone who's very controlled and ordered mm. to purposefully be not controlled yeah. and ordered, rather than doing a structured assessment that the yeah. that the compulsive expects you to do from the research they've done about psychology. Mm. You'd be like, so how's your week going, man? Yeah. What, what do you want to talk about? Yeah. You know, and they might hate that. Yeah, that might just be too destabilizing yeah. altogether. It's, it's too unstructured. Yeah. So the last thing is kind of related to that, that these clients seeking consistency and control. And so the idea of change is threatening. It sort of creates a feeling of vulnerability mm. that, yeah. hang on, I'm well, following creating, these rules. Yeah, you're creating uncertainty. Yeah. Exactly. So they're likely to minimize their emotions and feel uncertain about what they should be feeling. And they can find therapy really unsettling because it's ambivalent and it can bring up indecision and fear of change. It's sort of actively going straight for those things that are threatening. Yeah. Yeah. So did you come across? Yeah. So you'll love it because it was all about interpersonal. Huzzah. So Benjamin, she is one of the main interpersonal theorists and she suggests that therapy can become a struggle for power, sometimes Mm -hmm. a OCPD patient wants control or sometimes they want others to take control, Mm. for example. So like we've kind of talked about a lot through this whole series is that you want to engage or you can use someone's personality pathology as a way of hooking them into treatment. Mm. So what I mean by this is that you use kind of the aspects of, of whatever that disorder is and play on that as a way of hooking them into the therapeutic process mm. and then down the track they're already challenge a bit more or yeah that things. kind of thing so yeah. for example in this one you would want to engage an ocpd patient with their rationality mm. side their rational side so give them a point-by-point logical therapy plan mm-hmm. and present that to a cast of the scientific research you know oh the past influences the present so you know part of that would be to explore your childhood and mm. sort of work out where some of these things might have come from all the while the therapist in that is helping them gain perspective, mm. really. So you're helping them slowly but surely establish empathy for that young, malleable child yeah. that had a cold 
demanding parent who you can start to counter as a therapist, mm. right? And so, and then provide they, a different experience. Provide a different experience, and then the patient then learns to do that for themselves, mm. right? If they develop compassion for that child, then they become free of needing to seek approval with negative parental images that they've got in their head. And you should teach them to understand that identifying with their parents and adopting relentless fault finding was a survival mechanism Mm. at the time. That's no longer needed. That's maladaptive. And so you would, you know, point out that if you're critical of yourself all the time, then you're going to feel pretty lousy Mm. and you're going to feel anxious about the result. And, you know, what if you didn't do that? Mm. But... You would imagine that's a difficult process Absolutely. to kind of to take on. Yeah. Talked about couples work, which I thought was quite interesting. Mm. And it fits really with what I often think about with, say, schema therapy, which mm-hmm. I talked a lot about in the actual, the last OCPD pod. Mm. But talks about that people with OCPD often marry people with personality features that have an element of dependency. Mm-hmm. So... So it maintains that position yep. of control. Yeah, so it complements the need for control. So mm. someone who's got a need for dependency would like having someone who's got a need for control mm. and someone who's got a need for control would like having someone who they can control, essentially, yeah. right? Like it would Keeps fit. things stable. Yeah, so it's like this is idea in relationships, positives attracted to negatives, mm. right? Like if you get two people controlling, they're probably not going to work. They're, they're, they're <laughs> probably not going to work long-term in a yeah. relationship, right? That kind of stuff. So... If you're thinking about personality styles or personality disorders, this would be dependent personality or histrionic personality, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. And they talked about that sexual problems between in relationships can reveal the larger problems, the core problems in the relationship. Mm-hmm. So I mean, th- this sounds quite sort of sexist, but I thought it gives a good example. Like a male might... A male compulsive might feel when his partner is withholding sex is a play for control, mm. right? Or a female who might not be able to orgasm, that might be related to being really, really tightly controlled mm. and not being able to let go. Yeah. And so that that was sort of the way that they kind of thought about it. Thought like, about it. It's like, well, what what's what does that actually mean? Yeah. Rather than just like, it is what it is. Yeah. Like, yeah. does this reflect a larger component of mm. the relationship? And what I liked was because compulsive understand rules, you as a therapist can set rules yep and they'll stick to them for difficult parts of a relationship Mm -hmm. and paradoxically you help them relinquish control around money around Mm -hmm. leisure time around sex whatever it is and then you can rebalance the relationship essentially Mm. interesting and and you can imagine that wouldn't just apply in couples work but you could sort of say all right well you know perhaps these are the rules around how you would be empathetic to somebody mm. or perhaps you need to have a rule around how to complete that project yeah complete mm. the project or like that kind of stuff so you can succeed better or something like that mm. so because if you're perfectionist all the time you would probably not complete things and so mm. it's like well and then they might come to therapy because their their world's crashing down around them yeah because mm. they finally got the job they wanted and Things aren't working out how they thought. Right. Well, like classic one would be postgraduate students. Yeah. They kind of get into postgrad, they start doing thesis, but they're too perfectionistic, Mm. and it it don't get anywhere. Don't get anywhere, right? So, and the pressures on on producing Mm. not so much about perfection. Yeah. So they talked about other interventions very quickly. Relaxation being quite important, Mm -hmm. like helping them, and you would help them loosen up in session, Mm -hmm. and then also like in anxiety provoking context like later on so i think this book was written before mindfulness Mm. came on so they talked about you know just relaxation exercises Mm -hmm. cognitive strategies so that would be aiming at those thinking areas and those 
maladaptive core beliefs. So they'll like listing goals. They'll like ranking <laughs> them. And so you choose easy goals first. And really what you're wanting to do there is to get them to feel a measure of success. Yeah. Oh, you know, this therapy is working. Mm. And also like feeling like they're getting some accomplishment. And I guess rather than having this confrontation style as a therapist, it would be about kind of like, hmm, we're scientists and let's have a look at this mm. and we're going to try and discover this. Let's explore this. this together. I'm going to discover this, and this is like, which is a very non-judgmental way, mm. which is you're sort of automatically doing that limited reparenting yeah. kind of thing. And just finally, psychodynamic. So they talked about transference discussions can be a place to start, but they're probably not as effective because many OCPD people are sort of affect denying them. Mm. And so you perhaps could use other things like dream interpretation or free association to get at sort of deep-seated fears. And patients could probably be quite surprised at how revealing these, mm. these approaches would actually be, like quite quickly get into the nuts and bolts of whatever the fears are or something. Mm. And then you would use that to sort of go like, well, how does this link to your rigidity and, and what's yeah. going on there and your insistence for control and that kind of stuff. But as, as the end bit of it was, many OCPDs won't like this approach because mm. they'll feel it's unscientific and a waste of time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but probably quite useful. Uh, it probably would actually be quite useful. Yeah. So. Interesting. So that's uh, that's therapy. That's OCPD done. Nice. Well, we're going to take a quick break and yep. then we'll be back with things we came across. You're listening to Shoot Spot. But as we try to widen and make more consistent our description of what we see, as it gets wider and wider and we see a greater range of phenomena, the explanations... So we're having a break. We're having whiskey and tea and water and any other substance that is in Hunter's house. Mm -hmm. While we do, we'd like to thank you for listening to the show. If you could please say nice things about us on social media, on Twitter, you can contact us, give us any kind of ideas for the show, show us something amusing about psychology. We're constantly hoarding cartoons that are varying degrees of appropriateness. Or on iTunes, leave us a review, give us a five-star rating that we've definitely noticed the number of ratings has increased of late so Huzzah. thank you for everyone who has made the time and effort to do that we do actually really appreciate that yeah absolutely it bumps us up on the list so that other people can find us tell someone that you're listening and hopefully something positive about it uh send us <laughs> <laughs> send us an email oh, you were really concise i just thought you know I'll, I'll just let you go this is maybe one time i'll just let you go and no well that's because i i just had to see how long it would take you before you interjected or send us an email to shrinkspod at gmail.com or have a look at our website, twoshrinkspod.com. All right, back to it. Welcome back. Uh, we're going to wrap up the show, as always, with things we came across. Uh, this is a section where we just throw out some random journal articles that we've stumbled across while looking for other things. It's very non-OCPD. It is. Just throw caution to the wind. Yeah. The other person doesn't even know what we're about to talk about. It's dangerous. (laughs) (laughs) So, do you want to start us off? Yeah. And if you're interested in things we came across or if you're looking for past topics, we've Amy has diligently (laughs) compiled a list of these things. Mm. So... When you went to university, mm. journals, were they online? Originally, when I first started yep, this yep, journey. Yep. 
Only the ones that were currently being published, so at yep. the time that they were published. Yep. But if you wanted anything that had already been published yep. by more than like a year, yep. it was printed. Yeah. So when I did undergrad, hmm. like there was no online journals. Yeah, it was all printed. And then I got into, I think I got into honours and there was some that were starting to be online. And I remember like kind of this going to a, you know, how to use a search engine seminar. Mm-hmm. And it was like, and if you want to select by, you know, journal citations that have got, you know, PDFs or whatever, mm. then, you know, this is what you click. We'd, and like almost nothing would come up, yep. right? But then also kind of like there was a sense in the room of like, oh, well, that's not the proper way to do it. You have to go to the library mm. and do it. You know, like, why would I ever want to use mm. that way? Which is now nowadays, if it's not a PDF, like I'm no. not going to get it. And but, I mean, the university that we've done a master's at is almost enti- their entire library is digitized yeah. at this point. The library is empty. It's quite sad. So anyway, so so what's, what's interesting is that over time, journals have now gone back and digitized their old collections, mm-hmm. right? which is really, really useful for stuff. But what's interesting is that old medical journals are doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. I got a message from one of our listeners, Dr. Ash, and she'd sent me a message that uh, an old medical journal, the Edinburgh Medical Surgical Journal, and look at the case of lodgement of a musket ball in the left ventricle of the heart, which was published in 1854. That would definitely be useful for my current practice. Instrumental labour, different results of. Mm. Medical facts connected with immigrant ships, Mm. 1854. Scurvy. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) This is the only one I can think of. Um, Hang on, I've got some more here. Uh, we've got Delitris. Delitris, yeah. Delitris practice of some of the I- Irish peasantry connected with belief in fairies. Oh. Case of tetanus. Love me a pixie. <laughs> Case of tetanus in which a large quantity of the tinicature of opium was administered by mistake. Mm-hmm. A memoir on the extraction of a tooth. <laughs> uh, that's by... G. Hill in 1819. Cases where arsenic was accidentally swallowed by three maidservants <laughs> and which poisonous action was succeeded by singular nervous affections. Oh, that's my favourite so far. Uh, and that was 1819 by A. Um Poor maidservants. <laughs> it's just like, but just like really kind of interesting ways of phrasing the case. The case of a very extensive fistula successfully treated by a new method. Yeah, you wouldn't find anything like that now. Suggestions in regard to the performance of post-mortem examinations mm-hmm. and my favorite favorite by t barclay et al in 1854 the climate of egypt <laughs> so I just, I, never previously discussed <laughs> so i thought i'd just leave it there excellent well mine this week is inspired by another podcast yep. uh ali ward's ologies which most of the facts that i've been spouting out lately have come from i quite enjoy spouting out like, a fact like like the, the preceding hour that we've just had? Or like no, like individual specific facts. Oh, dinner party conversation. Yeah, some of which are more or less appropriate. Mm. The ones from this podcast. Do you ever try and like weave like interesting facts into therapy with your clients? Like you, you, know, you work with children. Yes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And in fact, Ali actually helped me with a particular client last week inadvertently who was freaked out about that she had insomnia and was going to die from not sleeping. Mm -hmm. And I was able to draw on a recent ologies podcast that was that, yes, this is the case. If you don't sleep, you die. 
but that our brain is so good at making sure we get even just seconds of it enough to keep it going that you would need someone there constantly keeping you awake to be able to die from that. She was very reassured. So thank you, Ali Ward. But this one, recently she interviewed someone who looks into the apocalypse. As you do. And so I went looking for things on survivalists because I figured I don't know much about them. I found a paper uh, which is by someone who's from the University of New South Wales, Chris Jackson, called Are Survivalists Malevolent? Mm -hmm. Uh, In Personality and Individual Differences, our favourite. Hello, what year? This year. Oh, good. Yeah. So I think Chris isn't a big fan of survivalists and comes out with some pretty bullshit statements. He's curious about what facets of personality are related to being a survivalist. So someone who's interested in preparing for some sort of future doom. Yeah, like Zeb for Zachariah. Would you read that book? Mm. I think it was made into a movie, but I read it at school. I actually read a few. There's like a lot. And I read this book, Empty World, by I think John Christopher. Mm -hmm. Tiny little paperback. There's a lot out there, right? Yeah, in like teen fiction. Yeah. It's great. Absolutely. But no one has come up with a measure of what the behaviours are or the kind of preparedness around. All right, survivalists. Survivalists. So he came up with a list that was a whole bunch of different things like stockpiling food and water, stockpiling weapons, uh, thinking about ways to survive a potential disaster, thinking about who would be in your survival group, Mm. uh, all of those kind of things things and so he wanted to see what personality characteristics were related <laughs> to be in your survival group yeah sure i'll keep you <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah you can stay <laughs> you look so uncertain about whether oh, i would yeah, say I yes really, to that i really don't buy that anyway could yeah. you <laughs> you really look worried about that it's okay no i was, just, I was, I was, just, I was just mentally going through the process of like what survivalist skills I had. I'm thinking, and I'm like running through my head, setting up a Wi-Fi router. <laughs> you, know, you can cook. Rec- sound editing. Uh, I can cook, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, most people can though. Yeah, but to it's, varying it's, it's, degrees. It's not as- You've watched a lot of Survivor. <laughs> <laughs> you know how to make a fire with a flint. <laughs> now no, we just need to find I've some flint. people make fire with flint. Continue. Where do you find flint? Anyway, um... <laughs> So his argument is that it's under-researched and that we need to kind of suss out the personality characteristics of survivalists because they might be a danger to society. His words, Mm -hmm. this is a possibility. So he kind of went through some of the, you know, research that has been done so far. It's not a huge amount. Queried whether the characteristics might overlap with criminals, saying that both groups seek an unfair advantage through inappropriate acquisition of resources in favour of themselves. And uh, he also points to the fact that survivalists... Such a pejorative way of defining criminality. Anyway, continue. Yeah. He also points to the fact that survivalists are often exhibiting behaviour outside of society's norms. Yeah. So it, it's not a conventional kind of thing to be doing. And... He also said that he thought that they might be low in general mental ability as planning for an apocalypse is indicative of cognitive failures inefficiently and competently dealing with information. Mm. So it was quite a rough start to the paper if yep. you're a survivalist. The only positive in the kind of introduction was that they might be entrepreneurial. Wow. Well, you know, they're kind of striving out on their own, setting up a new... They always seem to have a lot of money to mm. like set up like the... 
the underground shipping container that's full of weapons and and exactly tin soup and whatever it's not something else. you can just kind of wander into it's no if you're on the dole i don't think you're really going to be able to do that probably not it would take yeah. extra time yeah so he had 227 participants, all managers. I think this is because he's from a faculty of business and perhaps that's the cohort that was available. Yeah. Uh, administered a whole bunch of questionnaires. And I thought I might just read you the summary of his results because this was a sort of one of those brief submissions to a paper. And yeah, I could right. go through all the correlations, but I think this is better. No, yeah, do that. Overall, results suggest that survivalists are potentially malevolent in individuals in terms of personality, e.g. their high scorers on all scales of the dark triad, and behaviour, e.g. they may stockpile weapons, mm-hmm. which will also provide strong preservation instincts should disaster strike. They are also inventive and ambitious, so being spirited, reflective and entrepreneurial, whilst also somewhat lacking in mental and social skills, having low rationality, low agreeableness and low general mental ability, which will likely limit their success in a functioning society. Yeah, right. But yes. in a post-apocalyptic world... Every man for himself. Yeah, that's it. So dark triad is narcissism, psychopathy and Machiavellianism. Yes. Yeah, right. So if you're high on those, yeah, right. How yep. interesting. If you've got someone in your life who's high on those, check out their weapon stash. Yep. Make good friends with them. Although I don't know whether I'd really want to survive in a post-apocalyptic Me neither. Like I, w- I tried to watch that movie, The Road, and I couldn't get through mm. it. He also did estimate the numbers of people no. who would fit into meeting sort of a mid-threshold yep. and above. And it it was bigger than you'd think <laughs> in the US. It, it was... So... 15% of people strongly agreed that they would uh, stockpile weapons or they have stockpiled weapons. And so if you expand this out to the US population, that would mean 50 million Americans stockpile weapons. Yep. And eighty over 83 million people are in the higher percentiles of survivalism. That's, <sighs> a, that's good. That's good. Yeah. Comforting, right? Question. Hmm. What... What would you be putting? Three things that you would put in your survivalist cave. Hmm. <laughs> Is it bad that my first thought was chocolate? <laughs> <laughs> I want like luxury items that I can both enjoy and trade. Yeah, right. Yeah. I was just thinking you're going to put in like three books. Well, books. Because yeah. you haven't said that they have to be individual items. So yeah. chocolate as a collective, books as a collective. Oh, wow. Just like... I mean, the question is whether the gin is the third item or it's something more practical like, I don't know, a Swiss Army knife. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Some matches. <laughs> we have, we've really taken a turn. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Personality Disorders series. We mm-hmm. have absolutely enjoyed doing it. Yeah. And thank you to everyone who's like taken the effort to listen to them because we said everyone has actually, the numbers have gone up quite a lot. Absolutely. And, uh, it's, I've, I've learned a stack. Me too. Yeah, and then I think next time we're going on to a bunch of interviews for Psychology Week. Yeah. So we'll be releasing those next week. Yeah, so say, uh, stay, keep your eye on the podcast feed because there's going to be a whole lot of podcasts that are going to drop and we've, Amy and I have been working pretty hard on that. Yeah. So, it should be very so many you won't know what to do with. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So we'll catch you next time. See you later.